Welcome back to Reasonable Faith with Dr. William Lane Craig. I'm Kevin Harris, and we're concluding this series of podcasts today on a recent dinner conversation with Dr. Craig. And today, the audience has some questions. You'll hear some tough questions today and Dr. Craig's answers, so stay close. And just a quick reminder that the matching grant campaign is in effect from now to the end of the year. Some gracious donors have gotten together and agreed to double whatever you give up to $250,000. So your giving and impact is doubled. Please bless Reasonable Faith with whatever you can and take advantage of the matching grant going on now. You can give and get more info right now at reasonablefaith.org. Now let's conclude a dinner conversation with Dr. William Lane Craig. For the college-educated layperson who has, who's intrigued, perhaps in hearing you speak tonight or seeing one of your videos online, reading one of your books, wants to wade into the apologetic ocean, but not end up in a, in a region that's 5,000 fathoms deep. Right. <laughs> where, where would you recommend that they might start? In I recommend my book, On Guard. On Guard is meant to be a primer for people who are beginners in apologetics. And it's kind of like uh, a Swiss pocket knife. It's good for everything. It's got arguments for the existence of God. It's got responses to atheistic objections. It's got evidence for the claims of Jesus and his resurrection from the dead. And then a final chapter defending Christ as the only way of salvation. So if you will master the contents of On Guard, and I want to underline the word master, it's not enough just to read a book. A lot of people say, oh, well, I read that. You know, it, I'm not talking about reading a book. I'm talking about memorizing the arguments and being able to share them with people from memory. If you digest and master the content of that book, you will be able to deal with 95% of the people that you encounter in your spiritual conversation. So I would start with On Guard. And the next step beyond that would be then my book, Reasonable Faith, which is sort of on guard on steroids uh, and goes to a more intermediate level. Very good, thank you. I think we're going to turn this over to questions. Sure. Thank start you. with Shane and then we'll move from there, okay? On my podcast, the Hope Skeptic Podcast, I've gone to a lot of events where you have uh, Christians, and I think I polled about 100 Christians, and the question I would put to them was, what is faith? And the overwhelming answer that I got at these events, a different denomination represent a lot of different kinds of events, the overwhelming answer is, it's a blind leap. Yeah. So when I ask, why did you believe this way towards the Christian faith? Uh -huh. There are a lot of different faith leap options, right? They, I often get a blank response. So it's... It's just an internal gut feeling. It's something I can't explain. Faith is a spiritual sixth sense. My read of 1 Corinthians 15 is that this is the thing of first importance, that Christ was, he died, he was buried, he was risen again, seen by eyewitnesses before seen by the prophets. I'm wondering, have we stopped teaching the thing of first importance? I think you're absolutely right that this defective view of faith puts people in a very perilous position. Um, there is actually a non-Christian philosopher who engages 
in what he calls street epistemology. And he teaches these secular students to go out and ask this kind of question. Why did you leap one way rather than the other? And when the student, Christian students realize they don't have a good answer to that, they begin to deconstruct. Mm -hmm. and, and some of them lose their faith because of this defective concept of faith. So it's really important that we convey to people a New Testament concept of faith. That is, uh, faith is placing your trust in what you have good reason to believe is true. Mm -hmm. Faith is placing your trust in what you have good reason to believe is true. Uh, and that emphasizes the importance of giving these good reasons. Hi, Dr. Craig. So Hi. Uh, when I became a Christian 10, 15 years ago, you mentioned Dawkins and Dennett. And for me, those are easy atheist responses. Even as somebody that did not have the education, I can respond to a lot of Dawkins's just remedial arguments. <laughs> Today, uh, Graham Oppie is oh. a name that is brought up so much. And so I think now as a pastor and an apologist, I'm 30. And I look back and I, and I listen to some of Graham Oppie's arguments, and I think, thank you, Jesus, that Graham Oppie was not alive or was not around when I became a Christian because some of his arguments, when I get them explained, um, are can be very convincing. And so knowing Graham Oppie, and I know you've spoken to him, what is there an Achilles heel? Is there a weakness that you found in discussing him and saying, okay, well, here, Graham, is where your worldview falls apart, and this is why Christianity is more probable than what you were describing. Uh, Graham Oppie is an Australian philosopher who I have said is scary smart. He is really brilliant, uh, and yet uh, atheistic and secular. And what you have to do is simply read the scholarly literature in response to Oppie. Um, it won't do to read popularizers to answer an Oppie. And so I've written several things. I think, just to point to a couple of weaknesses, he has a standard for success in argumentation that is so unrealistic that it would mean we have no successful arguments for virtually anything. So it's easy to say there are no good arguments for God's existence if you set the bar so high that they have to compel belief in any rational person. His answer to the Kalam cosmological argument I find to be absolutely bizarre myself. It is that the initial stages of the universe are metaphysically necessary uh, and that they had to exist. And that's contrary to everything we know about uh, the contingency of the laws of nature and the models of the universe. And yet this, I think, is Oppie's faith commitment that he believes that the metaphysically necessary being is the initial conditions of the universe, and so on and so forth. You've just got to uh, see how professional Christian philosophers have responded to him, and, and then you'll be able to find, I think, good answers. Hi, Dr. Craig. Uh, I know you recently revisited the literature on the fine-tuning argument. Yes. Systematic theology. And my question concerns the initial low entropy condition of the universe. It seems like we use that as an example of fine-tuning. Um, it's 10 to the power of 10 to the power of 123. Um, but then when the dialectic moves to the multiverse as a potential explanation for the fine-tuning of the constants and quantities, we as theists say, well, hey, 
Um, we could actually have a whole lot less or a whole lot more entropy in the universe for us to be around and embodied, conscious agents. We could be a pocket of order within a wider sea of equilibrium. And I've always wondered how to uh, understand the use of the initial low entropy condition as an example of fine tuning. But then we say when we're evaluating the multiverse, well, actually, we can have a lot more entropy and we can still be around. Yeah, I'm not sure I see the inconsistency there. Uh, the idea of the, the, of the initial low entropy position is that it's highly, highly improbable that the universe should have begun that way. And uh, so that would be a condition that would characterize the very beginning. But then with respect to the, the, the multiverse, the argument there that Roger Penrose gives um, is, is the Boltzmann brain problem. That's the argument that I think is, is relevant, is that if we were just a random member of a multiverse, then there is no probability that we would be ordinary observers rather than Boltzmann brains that have fluctuated into existence out of the vacuum. And that, that problem is really, really difficult for the multiverse proponents to answer. Um, even if you can't prove that it's probable that we are Boltzmann brains, you are at least left with skepticism that there's no reason to think that our perceptions of the external world are veridical and that we are not just Boltzmann brains. So that argument seems to be perfectly consistent uh, and I think goes through very well. So is it merely a highly improbable event or truly fine-tuning such that if, we're take, if it were to take a slightly different value, we embodied conscious, conscious agents wouldn't have existed anywhere throughout the universe? Now, if I didn't hear you quite as well without the microphone, but you said it's highly improbable. That is the thrust of the fine-tuning argument, is that the, uh, the existence of embodied conscious life is much more probable given theism than given naturalism. And so when you compare the two, the probability of theism wins out. And I have to report that this argument from fine tuning, of all the theistic arguments, I think this one is the most respected argument on the contemporary scene. Even non-Christian uh, philosophers will say, yes, this is a good argument for God's existence. Now, they might think there's something else on the other side, maybe the problem of evil that outbalances it. But in and of itself, it is widely recognized that the fine-tuning argument is a, a good argument for God's existence. What about the origin of life? Um, the origin of life might... I said, what about the origin of life as a design argument? Yes. Um, I have recently worked on this, and um, what I want to say there is that the origin of life on this planet remains a mystery. Um, and this is not just the opinion of certain radical conservative people like James Tour at Rice University in Houston. 
No, I think that this represents the consensus view of the field, that we don't really know how life originated on this planet. Um, in the first place, we don't know how the basic building blocks of life were synthesized, those bio-macromolecules that are essential to life, the nucleic acids, the carbohydrates, the proteins, and the lipids or fats. Nobody knows where these came from. They're not found in meteorite or comet samples from outer space. Um, and so we have no evidence that these are prebiotically possible uh, through naturalistic means. Moreover, there have been no successful attempts to synthesize these macromolecules in the laboratory that don't involve investigator interference that would prevent these from being realistic prebiotic conditions on, on Earth. Uh, and, and so you've got those bio-macromolecules that we don't know where they came from. And then secondly, how do you assemble these into a living cell? Uh, a living cell is breathtakingly complex, and no one knows how to build a cell membrane uh, or to have the, um, the inner structure of the cell to, to be alive. Uh, and so that's just a complete mystery. And so I think there is kind of a consensus that the origin of life on this planet is a mystery that we don't know where it came from. Um, but I think by far most people would be very reluctant to therefore draw a God of the gaps conclusion that just because we don't understand the origin of life, therefore God did it. Uh, so even a James Tour, for example, who says that we're clueless about the origin of life, is actually a methodological naturalist. He says, I never talk about God in my scientific work. I never infer to an intelligent designer. All I say is that qua organic chemist, we are clueless as to how life originated on this planet. Now, from a Christian point of view, now, no longer doing natural theology, but approaching this as a Christian theologian, as, as I want to do, it seems to me I'm quite open to say, well, what does the Bible teach about the origin of life? And it's pretty clear that Genesis 1 teaches that God is the author of physical life on this planet. Genesis 1 is a description of how God transforms the desolate, uninhabitable waste that the earth was. In Hebrew, this is tohu wa bohu. It is uninhabitable waste. And over the six days of creation, God transforms this uninhabitable waste into a living biosphere fit for human habitation. And so as a Christian, I think that God is the one who's responsible for the origin of life on this planet. Now, how he did it, well, we don't know. It, maybe he did synthesize bio-macromolecules and put them together and somehow form a proto-cell or, or something. We don't know the means, but I think as Christians, we stand very comfortably within mainstream um, prebiotic chemistry in, in saying that we believe that God is the ultimate author of life. Fair, fair. Um, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of Molinism. Um, 
and uh, but I have had a, a question about it, and I was wondering if it might be some kind of issue you need to be watchful for. Um, I, I'm wondering um, when we say things like uh, um, God knows which uh, which persons um, He could create and what they would do in any given situation, and chooses um, which which world to create, which has those people, etc. I do wonder, um, what it, has there any been work done into what exactly metaphysically makes up a person? And would, are there any properties that would, that would kind of uh, inform what kind of will we have and what we would do? What, what kind of what? What kind of will we would have. Will? Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and like, if, uh, what, what prevents God from creating persons um, with with different um, properties uh, that would that might inform what kind of will they have. Like what what makes me choose Christ and not somebody else? You know, yeah. you've, you've talked about persons that in no no for no possible world would would choose Christ. Um, but but why exactly is that? Do you think um, the doctrine of middle knowledge has revolutionized my theological thinking? I think it is the most fruitful theological concept I've ever encountered, and it informs all of my systematic philosophical theology that I'm doing. In fact, it occurred to me the other day that this is going to be the first Molinist systematic theology that's been written probably for centuries. Um, and with respect to your question, the Molinist doesn't have a peculiar concept of what a person is. There's, there's nothing there that would be different from what we would normally mean by a person. Uh, namely, a, a person would be a, a rational, self-conscious being um, who is endowed with uh, freedom of the will and with moral agency. Those are sufficient conditions for being a person. Now, that definition is broad enough to allow that there could be different kinds of persons. So there can be human persons on this planet, but on some other planet, uh, maybe there are some Klingons who are persons. Uh, Josh and I have often talked about these other non-human persons. I think angels are non-human persons. Um, they have those properties of intentionality, self-consciousness, rationality, and will, um, just as we do. And so they're persons, but they're not connected with a hominin body, and so they're not human persons. So. Certainly, God could have created persons which would have different natures and, and be different in the way I described. Um, well, uh, maybe, maybe more, like, just straight to the point, like, do you, do you think there's anything, like, substantive, like, metaphysically about a person that, 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 why exactly do I have a will that chooses Christ um, and maybe not somebody else? Oh, that's just freedom of the will. Yeah, that it is just that you are a free agent who has the freedom to either accept or reject God's grace. And that is distinctive of Molinism, is a deep commitment to libertarian freedom and the fact that God gives sufficient grace for salvation to every person he creates. So our salvation literally lies in our own hands, and it's simply your free choice as to how you will respond to God's grace. We have another question over here.
And by the way, if you, if you try to smuggle in two questions, you will be ejected from that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's your free choice. <laughs> uh, thank you, Lord, for correcting being here. So I'll, I'll go to the point. Uh, recently, you have been uh, uh, in your recent faith podcast talking about the Gospel of John uh, and more particularly regarding um, the reliability of certain uh, phrases Jesus may have said. And uh, you also, in your podcast, you mentioned a YouTuber, um, which uh, you, you were talking about his, his, uh, his thoughts and, and such, for which then later on it prompted uh, an email conversation between you and Dr. Lily McGrew. Uh, bottom line, so there seems to be, in the Christian community, different approaches regarding the passage to passage the passage approach, I think it's what you kind of uh, uh, would argue for, and then the McGrew's arguing for more like a holistic approach. Yeah. Um, I am, the question is, I'm wondering, since you're an epistemologist just like them, do you think that their arguments are weighty and do they weigh into your thinking? Oh, I, I definitely think they're weighty and I welcome arguments such as Lydia offers for the historical credibility of the Gospel of John. And these approaches are not mutually exclusive by any means. To say that I can give good evidence that certain sayings of the historical Jesus are authentic doesn't do anything to say that therefore the whole Gospel is not historically credible. So these aren't mutually exclusive at all. My point was just simply that you don't have to prove the reliability of the whole gospel in order to find what you call patches or authentic sayings and events in the life of, of Jesus. Uh, they can be proved even if the whole gospel were not uh, historically credible. Um, so I, I think it's a both and. And uh, Lydia, uh, recent uh, recently sent me a copy of her new book on John, The Eye of the Beholder. And since I'm so preoccupied with uh, studying and writing for my systematic philosophical theology, I, I, uh, I don't have time to read it during my normal study time. So I put it in the bathroom. And uh, <laughs> that, that's when I read it. <laughs> and so I'll eventually get through it. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Dr. Craig, we're, we're very close to 9 p.m. We do have a few other questions. Are you all right? For oh, yes, I, I'm having a blast okay, and uh, would be I'll happy to entertain you, uh, anymore. Dr. Ferguson, I think our friend Dr. Heckel had his hand up earlier. Thank you, uh, Dr. Craig. Hi. You are the expert on the Kalam cosmological argument. I've had some students who have a lot of resistance to it. Would you briefly explain it and then perhaps give us an answer where you think the best objection to the argument? Okay, now you say you find students are resistant to this? Right. Really? Well, you tell me, why are they resistant? So if I understand the, the argument, everything that begins to exist has a cause. Yes, that's the first premise. Uh, the universe began to exist. That's the second premise. The universe must have a cause. Yes, that's the conclusion. Right, right. <laughs> so they say, as far as we know, everything that begins to exist has a cause. And so they seek to draw doubts upon 
upon the premise that everything that begins to exist, you know, has a cause. Since the universe began to exist, well, they say, as far as we know, and before the Big Bang, everything's up for grabs. So how do you respond to that kind of skepticism? Yeah, you know, I think that is a problem, that it's just, it, it's just ungrounded skepticism. And just saying it could be wrong or we don't know, that does nothing to undermine the evidence in support of the premises. Uh, you could say that about anything, that, well, we, you know, it could be otherwise. But I, I have given three arguments in support of the causal premise, which I think are almost undeniable. The, the, the first one is that something cannot come out of nothing. So honestly, I think anyone who, who denies the first premise is somehow intellectually compromised if he <laughs> thinks that, that being can come from non-being. So that's just groundless. And then as for the second one, the universe began to exist. How could anybody deny that the probable evidence is that the universe began to exist? I mean, granted, it's not certain. Could be overturned in the future. But how could anybody deny that in light of contemporary cosmology, that's probable? Even Lawrence Krauss, the skeptical physicist, in our debate in Australia, he, he finally came to the point where he says, yes, I, I think it is probable that the universe began to exist. Well, that's all I'm claiming. Uh, and it's not just the Big Bang that makes that probable. You've also got the thermodynamic properties of the universe that make it probable. So you've got dual scientific confirmation, which makes it even more probable. And then in addition to that, you've got the two philosophical arguments for the finitude of the past, which have been now drawing increasing defenders like Alexander Proust and Robert Coons. Um, and for me, it's those philosophical arguments that are the primary basis for affirming the universe began to exist. And the scientific confirmation is just like icing on the cake. So I, I think that these students are probably ill-informed, I'll bet. I'll bet they've never really gotten down and dirty with the arguments and the evidence, but they're just sort of being the skeptic and just saying, well, you know, it could, maybe it didn't happen. And that, that's not to provide a credible alternative explanation or to undermine the evidence that we do have. So that's how I guess I would respond. And I, I bet that wouldn't be adequate to them. I'm, I'm sure that wouldn't convince them. But I, I would take that to be a token of their irrationality rather than a deficiency in the argument. Hi, Dr. Craig. I, I wanted to change gears and ask a different kind of question. So um, a, a person through whom I found out about you is, is Dallas Willard. He, he admired oh. you greatly oh. and recommends your work and so forth. And it made me wonder, what is the role of your own spiritual formation and your um, life of discipleship in doing this kind of work? Because I think, yeah. I think there can be a stereotype of apologists as sort of, you know, ruthless logic choppers or something like that. And I'm just curious how that weaves into doing this as a ministry, even though you're yeah. doing intellectual work as a, as a scholar. Yeah, I think it's so important for those of us who are in this kind of ministry to mind our spiritual formation 
and our development. So I try to do the spiritual practices that are conducive to a walk with the Lord, like daily prayer, daily Bible devotions, daily devotions and prayer with my wife, corporate worship and singing, uh, fellowship with other Christians, involvement in evangelism. I think that these are the kinds of things that can help you to maintain a vital Christian life. And then I also really take to heart what Paul says. Don't think too highly of yourself than what you ought to think, but think with sober judgment. And the fact is I realize all too acutely my deficiencies. I feel so ignorant sometimes. And in writing this systematic theology, I think this, I'm so acutely aware of how inadequate I am to the task and how inadequate the job is that I'm doing, but I'm doing the best I can. I will say that I'm giving it my all and I can't do any more than that. But, but I, I do think uh, not to be full of yourself and, and to try to think properly about yourself is really, really important to maintaining that, that correct spiritual walk. Hey Bill, uh, first of all, I just wanna thank you for you're a real humble, giving service in church for all these years. I've been really privileged to see that, and I really look up to you on that. Oh. I think a lot of us would really uh, be glad of our lives without faithfulness, so thank you. I do have this problem that I'm working through, and I wanted to get your take on it. <laughs> I mean, I hear it from many of my non-Christian colleagues, too, but there is something that isn't actually very reasonable about our that there's evidence for it, but it still doesn't make sense. It's, like, I agree with you that the evidence is that God created all things. I also agree with you is that, that it really seems that Jesus rose from the dead, and there's evidence for that. But isn't it unreasonable to think that the creator of all things chose to allow his son to die on a cross? Uh -huh. Us, I mean, it's worth just us. Like, what is man? He's mindful. We're like the most oh. insignificant of dust when you think about being capable of creating everything. Yeah. And, and it seems that, um, I mean, I, can, I, I affirm these things to be true, but it seems to come to truly affirm them to be true, I have to recognize that these things are not what I would expect. They're, um, they're even not reasonable. I mean, I can accept that it's true, but I don't have a good account for it. Do you have uh -huh. a good account for it? Is there a way to... Well, I think, I think so. Yes, I, I think, Josh, you're thinking like a naturalist there in saying this. Um, the value of an object is not determined by the size of the object. We are indeed infinitesimal in comparison with the universe as a whole. But as the great Catholic philosopher Frederick Copleston said, one single human being is worth more than the entire material universe put together because we're made in the image of God. And therefore we have intrinsic moral value uh, and, and therefore, even though we're infinitesimal, diminished in size, we are enormously valuable and therefore worth redeeming. Uh, and so seen in that light, why shouldn't the creator of the universe assume a human nature, become like one of us, so as to provide atonement for our sins, cleanse us of unrighteousness that separate us from him, and then draw us into this incommensurable good of fellowship 
with himself. To me, that's eminently reasonable, although it does involve this tremendous act of condescension on God's part. Um, but that's exactly what the Christian affirms, is that God does condescend to take on a feeble, frail, mortal human nature. But it is a mortal nature that is of inestimable value because of our being created in his image. We have uh, Joe right here. Let me, let me ask you real quickly. Well, sure, David, why not? <laughs> oh. <laughs> he says image and likeness. What's the difference there between image and likeness? Okay, I didn't image hear. and likeness. Uh, apparently, from what Hebrew scholars tell us, there's no difference. Uh, the image and likeness of God are basically synonyms. And the, the dirty little secret is that Genesis 1 doesn't tell us what it means. It does not define what the image and likeness of God is. But it, it does tell us that it is what differentiates humanity from the rest of the animal kingdom. It's why we are not mere animals. Uh, and so I think there needs to be something constitutive about man that makes him resemble God and not resemble the rest of the animal kingdom. Well, then obviously it can't be our body because we have hominin bodies like the great apes. It's got to be something else. And so it seems to me the most plausible explanation is that it's we are persons, as God is personal. Um, and therefore, being persons, we are in God's image and likeness. So that, that would be the way I understand it. I wouldn't say that's what the Bible teaches because the Bible doesn't define what it means. But reflecting on it, that would seem to me to be the best theological account I could give of the image and likeness of God, that we are persons. Thank you, folks. We have uh, Joey. Hey, so we've asked, well, we've talked a little bit about fine-tuning and the origin of life, the complications of the cell and stuff. So I've had some of these discussions on, online with skeptics, and uh, you know we, we keep breaking it down, and they you know bring up the God of the gaps theory. Yes. And I think, well, when you really look at how complicated this is, and then you know, it's faith is you know what you believe, even though you can't confirm it in a laboratory. And I said, but then you guys are looking for space aliens and the multiverse and stuff you can't confirm. And we keep, um, and I say, but I think this is evidence. This is not proof. The fine tuning is evidence for God, not proof. I think this is a crop trail to God. And I get kind of upset when they say, and I say, but you're looking, you think science can find space aliens. But am I, am I getting into a dangerous territory? I mean, like trying to create a Tower of Babel, or is it reasonable for science to say, hey, we can look for God. We don't have to automatically rule a God or an intelligent creator out as they seem to suggest yeah. necessary. Well, I don't carry... Science still has something to do if we found a God. I don't think they claim, well, you know, Christians or theology lives on vagueness, and when you can't find an answer to vagueness, and that's where we live. But yeah. I don't think so. I don't carry any brief for the claim that science can prove God. Uh, what I say is this. Science can establish a premise in a philosophical argument leading to a conclusion that has theological significance. Uh, science can help to establish a premise in a philosophical argument leading to a conclusion having theological significance. So in the Kalam cosmological argument, 
The scientific evidence supports the second premise, that the universe began to exist. That's not a religious statement. That is a religiously neutral statement that can be found in almost any textbook on astronomy and astrophysics. In the fine-tuning argument, the uh, claim that the fine-tuning of the universe is not due to physical necessity or chance is supported by the best scientific evidence. And again, that's not a religious claim. Um, Dawkins also agrees that the fine-tuning is not best explained by physical necessity. Uh, on the other hand, other scientists will say it's not best explained by chance. Uh, so that is, that's not a God of the gaps reasoning because you're using the scientific argument evidence simply to establish a religiously neutral premise in an argument that leads to a conclusion that does have theological significance. So that's not God of the gaps reasoning at all. Thank you. We have another question over here. Um, I wanted to return to the topic of um, free will. You briefly mentioned uh, Alvin Plantinga, and I'm only vaguely uh, familiar with his free will defense, but if I remember correctly, um, in that defense, he essentially posits that uh, God, though omnipotent, uh, could not have created creatures that freely, or free creatures that never chose evil. Um, and I wanted to know your thoughts on that defense. Do you think that it's sufficient response to the problem of evil? Do you think that God could have created creatures or human beings that freely always chose the good? Uh, because after all, that seems to, in the future at least, it seems that that would be yeah. the case in, in heaven at least, where you have mm. human beings that always mm. freely choose Okay, there are a couple of questions going on here. It does seem to me that it's at least logically possible that everyone in any moral situation he's in would always choose the right thing. Otherwise, you're sort of landed in determinism, that we're determined to do evil, and that wouldn't be right. So it does seem like there would be a logically possible world in which everybody always freely chose to do the right thing, and so there would be no moral evil in such a world. But it may be that such a world is not feasible for God to actualize. And here, we make the appeal to divine middle knowledge to distinguish between worlds which are logically possible to actualize and worlds which are feasible to actualize. In order to be feasible, the right, boy, I'm, I'm, this is going to get technical, but in order to be feasible, the right counterfactuals of creaturely freedom need to be true in order for God to actualize that world. It might be that if God were to try to actualize one of these logically possible sinless worlds, that the creatures in them wouldn't cooperate and would do the wrong thing. And therefore, such a world may not be feasible for God because the wrong set of counterfactuals of creaturely freedom are true. And so it's not feasible for him to do. Now, you say, well, but what about heaven? I think that it may well be the case that in heaven, the freedom to sin will be removed. I think that when we see the beatific vision of Christ, we will be so overwhelmed by his beauty and holiness that the freedom to do evil will be effectively removed. It would be like iron filings in the presence of a gigantic electromagnet. They would just stick to it, and they couldn't possibly 
fall away because it would be so attractive. And I think similarly, when we no longer see through a glass darkly, but see God clearly in all his glory and beauty, that the uh, ability to sin will be removed. So I see this life as a veil of decision-making. God has created us at a sort of epistemic arm's distance, as it were, which allows us the freedom to resist his grace and refuse him if we so choose. But when we get to heaven, that epistemic distance will be removed and we shall see him clearly and then the freedom to sin will be gone. And therefore there would be no danger that sin might occur in heaven. We have another question over here. Hi, Dr. Craig. Um, I live in a sea of, of people that feel that they're very rational. And, and I've tried to use over the years these rational arguments that you spoke about in your initial comments. You said the, the rational argument is the one that would work best, right? To repeat, you know, you know, repeat the logical argument for why God exists. Yet, yet there's no openness to it because it becomes a rhetorical, positional debate all the time. And so what I found was I've been really compelled by Keller's argument mm. that says that we should not um, uh, challenge it, but rather step alongside and gently show them why uh, their belief is unreasonable. What do you think? This is a question of evangelistic strategy. It's not a question of the soundness of the arguments or, or the defense of them. Yeah, and I don't claim to be a specialist in evangelistic strategy. How's the best way to present these? I thought initially, I, I must say, that I would try to conceal the logical structure of the argument to make it more rhetorically pleasing, more of a narrative. But what I found over the years was that students loved hearing the premises articulated one, two, three, and seeing how clearly the conclusion follows, especially engineers. Engineers just love this stuff. And so over and over again, we find that, that Engineers in, in whatever field of engineering just resonate with this material. So I, I no longer try to hide the logic and, and put it in like a pleasing narrative. I just make it explicit. But you can still try to be winsome and, uh, and say, don't you think this makes good sense? Uh, uh, and, and, and try to be a, a winsome persuader, not to try to convince them they're irrational or anything like that, but just say, Gosh, these, I really find these convincing, don't you? <laughs> you see what they say. <laughs> we, we have one more right here. Well, uh, that's actually a great segue to what I was kind of getting at here. It's a, the whole culture wars thing. Hmm. thing. You know, I, I actually disagree with you on a couple things that you just said a few minutes ago, but like, I just would love to talk for hours and hours and hours and hours and <laughs> no end to it. But I, I get frustrated with my Christian brothers and sisters just as much as I'm getting frustrated with my uh, atheistic friends. And, like, you know, when you're talking about uh, life, people bringing up Darwinism. I mean, <laughs> Darwinism's old. I mean, you know, we yeah. got neo-Darwinism, we got new things, we got all kinds of great stuff going on. 
even though we still don't know anything about how the origins of what happened. So anyway, you seem like you're really enjoying talking to us. You have a winsome attitude. I mean, you're just super enthusiastic. And I find myself getting to the point where, what the hell is wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> with, with, with whom? What, what, what the hell is wrong with you? With me? Oh! You get frustrated, and when you do that, your style seems to overcome that. So. Okay, now, did I understand that, the... That was a backhanded compliment. Okay, so he wants to know what, what gets me frustrated, or... Well, why aren't you a cultural warrior? Why are you so winsome? Oh! <laughs> That's kind of, right? Is that, you know, remember I you told winsome? you when I became a Christian in high school, I felt called to share the message of the gospel, to win people to Christ. And that remains my overall calling. I'm an evangelist. I want to win people to Christ. Um, but I do it through philosophical argumentation. Um, and so I, I better be winsome. Or, or I won't <laughs> win the audience, I'll repel them, and I, I don't want to do that. And I often feel like I fall so far short on that. You know, I, I feel like, oh, I, I was too defensive in the way I answered that question, uh, or I let it get under my skin, and I'll, I'll talk to Jan about it afterwards, and, I, and she will encourage me and say, no, 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 it's fine, and she, she says, you know, as, as those of you who have seen our Red Goose and Brown Bear books on what is God like, I, I'm the brown bear in those storybooks. I'm the papa bear. And so she says to me, whenever I go out like this event tonight, she says, just be your fuzzy bear self. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's what I try to keep in mind, you know, to, to, to be my fuzzy bear self so that get along great. <laughs> well, I, I want to thank all of you for coming tonight. This has really been an enjoyable evening. Appreciate all of you.